I want to ask them some stuff from the angle of a professional historian, but I also want you to come up with questions of your own so that we can really put these guys on the spot and ask them the inside scoop on this thing called history and how our creative colleagues deal with history rather than from a professional guild historian's perspective, which is what I'm used to. So let me start off with this. I want to say that the dead, the dead don't haunt us. We haunt the dead. And that's the first thing I want to start off with, that we are not haunted by ghosts. We go and haunt them. And I want you to respond to that. I want you to think about how we bother the dead with our very human need to shape suffering, to give it some sort of narrative? Is it because we, even the most terrible, hurtful thing in the past, needs a narrative to give us a kind of closure, or what is it? So I'm going to throw that question while they're gathering their, their, their thoughts on that. I just want them to think of one more, and then, then I'll allow them to answer in a row. Is journalism, and I know people have come from a journalistic background, some people, history in a hurry? Okay. And if so, are they our frontline historians? I want them to respond to that as well, and in your own way. So could we, could we start with you, Rihanna? I know, I know. Okay. If you're ready. I'm ready. Both. Both. Um, okay, so in my novel, Can you hear? You can't hear. Okay. Sound dude? Sound dude is on it. Yeah. Okay, so I questioned Nelson Mandela's legacy. I questioned the common memory we have of Nelson Mandela as the great reconciler in South Africa. And I reached the conclusion that there were huge flaws in his legacy as president of South Africa. I felt he played a very important role. Um, as the first president of a democratic South Africa, but I think that there's a lot that we need to question. And I was inspired by the Forest students um, who said that Nelson Mandela was a sellout, and I went to go and gather information on that and reach the conclusion that he was. Oh, you can, but, but I think now the sound dude has fixed the sound, it might not be necessary. Okay, is it better? So, yeah, um, that was my conclusion that I reached. Um, every fact in my novel is a real fact. Um, the timeline is completely accurate. Um, every quote from people warning about the dire consequences for South Africa today, that we would end up with huge unemployment and huge social unrest, was all information that was actually said in 1995 to a large extent by journalists. And as a journalist in 1995, I was put in what my editor thought was a huge privileged position, that I was the Nelson Mandela reporter. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I covered Nelson Mandela exclusively for a few months, and I was the most bored I'd ever been in my entire career. Because he wasn't Sorry. there. Um, and when he was there, he was behind closed doors mm -hmm. with um, movie stars and models, and um, he was busy with that kind of thing. Mm. So for a few months, I covered Nelson Mandela and found out that he wasn't really doing much. But Meanwhile, behind the scenes, there was a lot going on in South Africa that we didn't know about and that we're still feeling the consequences of today. So, of today. so yes, as a journalist, I write the first draft of history, and as a novelist, I had the luxury of time 
to spend a good few years looking at six weeks in South Africa's history and what went wrong in those six weeks. And the six weeks that I examined in my novel is the Rugby World Cup. It is that moment when we were all one country, when we were all united, when we all stood together. And for me, the weirdest thing was writing a novel like that while Alan Zilla was tweeting, and Kelly Sparrow was Facebooking, and I was writing this novel saying, look at this man, he reconciled us all. We are a nation, aren't we? All right. I think we'll allow one question in hot pursuit of that, because I can see the audience is vibrating. No, I think let's take one quick question on that, because people are going to forget the emotion. Quickly. Someone's hand went... No? No one wants to? No one wants to break the ice? You'll get your turn. Yes, at the back. Quick, quick. Oh, is it? It's not in the program. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what I'd do. Okay. That was one of the best questions we've ever had. So who are you? <laughs> do you know what I'm going to do? You have to promise to give it back. I'm going to pass around her book, then you can see. This person is a journalist. This person is a novelist. This is extremely well-known. Rohana Rousseau. Pass it around. Yeah, sorry about that. I thought she was on the program. Uh, no. Surprise. All right, great. Well, then, I think if we don't have any questions other than who are you, we'll go to the next person, Alexander. You know who she is, right? Hi, my name is Alexander Fuller. I grew up in north of the Limpopo, and I now live in the States. I lived about half and half. And, um, you know, I have written memoirs in the States when they send you on book tour. Uh, they send a limousine to pick you up, and the limousine driver is used to, you know, rock stars or writers, and you know they'd rather have a rock star. Anyway, I get in the car and the limousine driver goes, you look like a writer, you know, crushing disappointment. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he goes, well, what did you write? And I go, memoir. And he goes, well, how many? And I was like, uh, I have five. And he goes, you don't even look that old. And I went, no, I'm incredibly self-involved. <laughs> my justification for memoir is that it is history the best way we know it. There is no remove. It's not a journalist. I am embedded in myself. And I have absolute access to everything that it meant to be what it was that I was. And I think especially, I look back at my first book, which I now can't read. I think it's so badly written. <laughs> but it is so important as a document of a time because I wrote it sort of fresh from childhood. And it has this childish innocence, in which I am portrayed as both victim, victimizer, and voyeur. And it is the most... I mean, when my mother read it, she didn't talk to me for four years, and at the time I thought it was an overreaction. I can't reread the thing now, it really needs an editor, but it is the most unforgiving look at an at a, a sort of insider what it was to be a little racist growing up on the front lines of a civil war. And it's unsparing because it's from a child's eye. I didn't know the narrative. And I think the thing, as I've gotten older, that I applaud and I think is the work of journalism, which I don't do. I mean, I, I think Fred, 
you know, I, I would do reportage and that's quite different, it has a different deadline. But my job as I've gotten older, I found, is to deconstruct the narrative. Story that we kept telling ourselves that has allowed a persistent power structure to exist since colonial times, through independence, through, you know, transformation. We didn't do enough to rattle, I think, the structure of the narrative. We weren't honest and robust enough. There wasn't enough, um, if any. I mean, there was so much revisionist history in the memoirs that came out of Rhodesia where everyone was best friends. And I end up throwing those books across the room because if you were white and you were best friends with black people, you were thrown out of the country, so you weren't there to have a childhood and write a memoir. And it's not honest, and it makes the other side of the story seem suspicious. So I think Memoir for me is the courage to write through the moi, <laughs> through the me, to the universal, <laughs> to say I represent the voice of this particular time and place. And at the same time, it's my job as a human to deconstruct these comfortable narratives that prop up certain people as heroes and demonize others and make narratives none of us can escape. Anyone in hot pursuit of that? Are you all familiar with the story she was talking about? Just one sentence? Your Rhodesian childhood, if you can oh, say right. that. Oh, right. So I grew up uh, in the 70s in Rhodesia, and my father fought uh, for Ian Smith. My mother actually didn't need to be recruited. She volunteered. Um, and so I got access to this like insane, racist, alcoholic family that no journalist from The Guardian, ever, 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 because my father would have shot them. So I was like, I mean, my, my parents now regret giving me an education, obviously, because I grew up to be a writer and I spilled the beans. Um, but anyway, so that was my, uh, my fun childhood. <laughs> Anyone wants to come in on that? My favorite thing is last night, actually, having, you know, really talked about the emotional violence. I mean, God, it got bloody in there. I think everyone, you got a free glass of wine with the event, you needed three shots of vodka, man. It got rough. And, and uh, the most amazing thing is, is at the end of it, one lady put up her hand, she goes, you know what, I don't think it was that bad. I gave your book to my kids as a Mother's Day present because it shows them it's fine to drink till three in the morning and have 18 boyfriends. And I was like, oh, thank you, South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is fine to have 18 boyfriends. I think that's what I'm going to take from this. Um, Fred, Fred Kamalo, are you all familiar with Fred Kamalo? Yes. All right, okay. um, I'm Fred Kumala. Uh, thanks, for, um, Alexandra, for that very entertaining uh, narrative mm -hmm. about uh, your Rhodesian childhood. In fact, uh, it was through reading your first memoir, Scribbling the Cat, that I think I be began to understand the history of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe better. Um, having read a lot of, of course, um, history books about Rhodesia, but told from... Uh, a certain perspective. Uh, this time around, I got to understand ordinary human beings, how they lived their lives, um, and so on. So that is the strength of, of the, the more moas that, that you've uh, produced. Um, I'm Fred Kumalo. Uh, I'm a literary uh, schizophrenic, <laughs> if there is uh, such a phenomenon. 
Uh, I've written seven books, and all seven of them are different in terms of genre. Mm. My very first was a memoir, uh, Touch My Blood, but I've also proceeded to write um, pieces of journalism and compiled those into, into book form, because that's what I do for a living, I'm a journalist. But I've also written uh, novels um, and uh, short fiction, so I, my writing ran the whole gamut of uh, literary expression. But I'm here um, having in, in, been invited on the strength of my uh, latest book, uh, Dancing the Death Drill, which is a, a historical novel. It's my first venture into that kind of area of um, uh, revisiting history through a creative writer's lens. Uh, because history, as I just uh, mentioned now, the history books that we've read give us the, the wars that were fought. They give us the names of the generals, the dates, the statistics, and so on. And it, it does tend to be very dry. White um, so um, as a creative writer, uh, as a, a, a historical novelist, I think the challenge is to um, inject some blood into those bones of history and breathe some life in, and, and uh, create some human beings and imagine them how they uh, prosecuted those wars as individual citizens in different locales. So, the, the book here, uh, just a bit about it, I don't want to spoil the whole thing because I'm hoping that you'd buy and I'm going to sign it for you for free. Um, the book is set uh, in, in the First World War. It uh, looks at the story of one battalion among many of men, uh, 25,000 black men, who were sent to go and uh, serve on the Western Front in France. But uh, this particular battalion, the 5th Battalion, had an accident. Their ship collided with another ship. It went down. And that story uh, has never been captured until recently. It, it was never captured in our history books. Mm -hmm. So I got to know about it. Um, in the black community, it has been passed from generation to generation through the oral tradition. And uh, one musical composer from Grahamstown, Jabez Foley, wrote a very beautiful choral song that we used to sing in primary school. That's how we know the story of the Mandy. But we don't know the detail. We didn't know the detail until I got to France as a journalist doing something totally unrelated, and I stumbled on graves. And these grave, uh, gravestones are, are bearing names of South Africans, Mokwena, Vunza, and so on. And that I was told these were some of the people who served alongside some of the survivors of the Mendy. And then I, I only realized that the Mendy wasn't just a mythical thing, it actually happened, because the graves are here. Mm. And then I started taking an active interest in the story, and I pursued it for a long time. And of course, I couldn't write it as a historical book, because there wasn't much to work on in terms of archival material, and I couldn't interview the people because they were dead. So uh, I decided to, to use this, uh, fusion of fiction and uh, history uh, to tell the story, to do 
justice to this injustice, historical injustice, uh, that the story was never captured, let's mm. put it back on the agenda. So that's the genesis of the novel, basically. 100 years later, it's, um, thankfully, Literally. people in your department, in the history department at uh, Stellenbosch, mm. are now doing real academic research into the story of the Mandy, and Albert Hunling is doing great work. And so I'm hoping that uh, the novel has reignited interest in, in this story, and many others which have been uh, uh, kept under wraps. Thank you. Well, if I'm allowed a hot pursuit question on that, Albert's point of writing his article about the Mendy was actually what he thought to, as he, Albert is a professional historian who works at the history department, and he was very interested in the question of the Mendy, particularly the way it had been passed down through oral tradition. And the idea, it's a, a very, very, very moving story, very poignant, how the men danced the death drill on the, and that's where the title comes from, from Fred's beautiful book. And you must read it, it is so moving. But Albert's point which is something about historians, is to debunk myth. And so what he set out to do was to say, uh-uh, let's be careful here. A myth has been invented. Mm -hmm. And Albert's whole point was to say, there's no evidence to suggest these men ever mm -hmm. danced the death drill, and that it was reimagined, as I understand his article, mm -hmm. Albert said that it was reimagined for political propaganda in the 1930s. So I find it an interesting point of tension the creative view and uh, mm -hmm. the idea of maybe even, you know, I'm going to say it, reinscribing myths mm -hmm. that we boring but detective-like historians go out of our way to debunk, because that's what we do for a living. Mm -hmm. So it's a tension between us, right? A lovely one, because okay. as, as human Perhaps. beings, as human Perhaps. beings, we do myths. I mean, we love myths, mm -hmm. and we can't. I mean, life is about yeah. myths, mythology. Uh, I don't want to offend people, but religion is about mythology. Yeah, and, and because mythology gives you hope, gives you something to look forward to, to say we come from somewhere. Uh, because without those mythological narratives, who are we as human beings? Mm -hmm. you know? But we historians so, are not allowed yeah. to invent so, myths. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, well, I love, the, I love the article. I love the challenge, you see. <laughs> Thank you. Or we have the faculty of theology for that sort of thing. Um, but thanks, Fred. And who wants to come in on hot pursuit on this? Yes, at the back there. Yeah. I think people need myths as a reference for life. Because mm. I just think of the two greatest Afrikaner heroes. The one was Royal Tomato. As you notice. Yeah. And the next morning, the guy that he didn't say jumped off the ship and walked off because it was no time. We also have a medal for it, and the people that have been with him that day, uh, whatever, in the city, mm. somebody said, yeah. said to him, you did drug, they were to kill you, and he didn't want to listen, and they shot him. So mm. my point is just that everybody needs a bit of a story. Yeah. Yeah. The myths we live by, right? I mean, but it's the job of historians to debunk the myths. That's why you guys hate us. Um, but it's why we're allowed to exist. Yeah. All right. Quick, quick, quick. I'm from the Netherlands, and a couple of weeks ago there was a remembrance of the 
um, passengers of the Mandy who drowned and who got to shore on the Dutch coast. Uh, you wrote an, art, I wrote an art, article about it, it was the pictures, you saw it. Yes, in Litnet, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah thank you. Um, and the historian, the local historian of, uh, at the graveyard where the, those five are buried, mm -hmm. there are uh, military graves, yes. they were buried with a lot of honor mm -hmm. there, there's remembrance every year. Um, the historian who did research on them is now coming to the Netherlands to speak to the families of the drowned soldiers, uh, what he knows about the history. Wow, thank you. Thank you. And it was also commemorated by the South African National Defence Force earlier this yes, last, yes. Year last year in Portsmouth. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is. It is. I think partly because of Fred's intervention, his work. I think as a creative author resonates much more with people than the boring old history that no one reads. We know. We know. It takes an author of Fred's caliber to bring it to public attention. And now we'll move to you. My name is Ahmad Dango and. Unlike all of these people, I've never been an academic or a historian or anything like that. I did some things to offend them, and I won't tell you about some of them. But <laughs> Can you all hear, guys? All right. Uh, I am a fiction writer, a poet, and uh, I wrote some plays and novels, maybe because of my history, and I'll be very brief about it. It's a very confused history. We didn't know what we were. I had a... That Afrikaans grandmother, she was from the Netherlands originally, the daughter of a farmer from uh, near Stellenbosch, not, not Stellenbosch, uh, a place near Swaziland um, called Amsterdam. And my grandfather was an Indian shopkeeper's son. And the two of them met. He delivered goods to the farmhouse, and the two of them met, and young people do. They had to run away, and they went to live in Fitas. Um, I have two. Uh, I have a, another Indian grandfather who's got another story that I don't want to repeat. Uh, he ran from India because the British were after him, after he killed a British soldier. And a Malay grandmother who um, comes from locally. So we were really confused. We didn't know what we were. And we grew up in a mixed township. And history for us um, was myth. You know, there was nothing else. And the reason I started writing fiction was to delve into it and to, in many ways, turn those myths upside down. And uh, from my very first novel, Kafka's Curse, Waiting for Leila, and in Bitter Fruit, I was quite attacked by the then president, Thabo Mbeki, for uh, questioning the TRC, um, because what happens in the book, and in this one, Dikaledi, it's a story of women who sustained people in the struggle. And one of them is a young journalist um, who uncovers um, that the crime, some of the crime here, were being engendered by gangs that were formed by disenchanted former MK fighters and disillusioned former white security police soldiers who felt abandoned by their government. They got together and they created the gang. Um, and it's a story that I think um, my publisher actually told me you're verging on thriller. But you know, this is to Timothy. <laughs> but the other thing I think I need to do, and I, I'm going to drop some names, and this is not just to respond to any one question, but I 
as a student knew Steve Biko, and I was in a van that took me from Grahamstown when I was banned, when he was taking another van and had him killed. Um, I worked as Bayer's Madeira for many years. He was the one who got me out of the private sector and got me into the NGO sector to come work for the Cajiso Trust. And then for 10 years, first for the Children's Fund and then for the Nelson Mandela Foundation, I worked for uh, Nelson Mandela, and I can tell you anecdotes about that. But the point of all of this is there's something that I learned. From Biko, he said, blackness is not an end in itself. It is a path to our humanity. Bayez Nodia taught us that if we do not begin to look beyond race and look at each other as human beings, we are never, ever going to solve the problems in this country. And as for Nelson Mandela, probably the most misunderstood one. And I just want to tell you what he said to us when the Nelson Mandela Day was launched. He called the staff and the trustees together and he said, listen, this must not be about one man. This struggle is not about one man. It is about this country. And what you must do is get people to take responsibility. If it's only one man, you will always get lost in that must, he called it, not a must. And he didn't mispronounce it, he deliberately said that. And I really believe that that is true. And what we need to do is take responsibility. I can tell you all kinds of anecdotes about how he put a man, a fat man called Jacob Zuma on his place because of his big tummy and Julius Malema because of his big tummy, but leave that for another day. So the point is, the legacy that we have to fight for is our own. We cannot um, put it all on the shoulders of one man. We cannot. And the last thing, we, what we need to ask ourselves is, if Nelson Mandela didn't agree to talk to F.W. de Klerk and all of that, and the country had gone on tearing itself apart, where would it have ended up? I can tell you, my own view is, and I've written a lot of um, short stories and novels about that, is we would have ended up in a completely con a country that's more in flames than it is now. We can put the flames out for this time, we can put it out, but if the war had gone on, we would never have been able to put out the flames. Okay. Can I ask a hot pursuit question, because I'd like to bring in Rihanna. Is the myth of Mandela more important than Mandela? And if so, is it dangerous to debunk the myth? I, I, I absolutely think okay. so. And I think that we are, we are creating the same problem again. Um, after Thabo Mbeki, we said they can't be worse. And we put all our eggs into the Jacob Zuma basket. And by we, I mean the majority of South Africans and the majority of ANC members, particularly. <laughs> um, and then suddenly, you know, Zuma's going to fix everything that Thabo Mbeki messed up. And now we've got Cyril Ramaphosa. And we say, oh, look, we've got Cyril Ramaphosa. That's absolute nonsense. Um, one person can't solve. Our problems are too big. And we can't keep plastering over our problems. And we need to look at our ugliness. And until we look at our ugliness, uh, we're not going to be able to move forward. Until we debunk all our myths and say, this is who we are. And by we, I mean everybody in South Africa. This is who we are. This is where we come from. We couldn't fix it in 20 years. Nelson Mandela 
kind of claimed that it was all going to be fixed in five years. It wasn't. Um, so in my book, for instance, <clears throat> I, I seem to be particularly concerned about violence. Both of my books are incredibly violent, but I think violence is one of the biggest problems in South Africa. Um, structural violence, first and foremost. Um, family violence, second of all, um, political violence. There's all kinds of violence. We are an incredibly violent society, so I kind of focus, I focus a lot there because I'm quite damaged myself by violence that I have experienced in my own lifetime. And I know I'm not going to heal. Um, I'm going to limp on and I'm going to try and limp and stand tall, but I'm never going to be healed and I don't think any of us are going to be healed. So when I looked at the six weeks in Nelson Mandela's life, which culminated with the Rugby World Cup final, I also look at the issue of what Afrikaners went through because of their exposure to violence. I mean, as perpetrators of violence, that leaves huge damage on your psyche. And as victims of violence, we can say, oh, look at me, I'm just the victim of violence. And I kind of get out of jail free card because I'm a victim. Um, but for perpetrators, we don't talk about what happened in this country 20 years ago. I know among my friendship circle, among my in-laws, and among my colleagues, so many 50-year-old to 60-year-old white men who did incredibly damaging things because they were told that they were fighting communists, they were told that they were fighting ungodly people, and they got no one to talk to today. And they all locked up with all of this pain and all of this suffering, and nobody wants to talk to them or acknowledge their pain even because they are the perpetrators. Um, I know you have to get them drunk on a lot of brandy and coke before they start saying what they did on the Caprivi Strip, what they did halfway through in Angola, because the story was we weren't even in Angola. Yeah, yeah. So they couldn't talk about what exactly. they did in Angola because they weren't there. So Mandela's standing there with a white rugby captain and he's an Afrikaans speaker and he's Francois Pinner and they say, oh, look how nice it looks. You know, because it's all optics. Um, but meanwhile, we are all crippled people and I think the first step we need to do is to acknowledge that we're crippled. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when I receive Alan Ziller's tweet about colonialism wasn't all bad, I'm like, but I come from slavery. So yes, colonialism wasn't all bad because, you know, you built the successful economy, but you built it by stripping my ancestors of their humanity, of, 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 of a name, of a culture, of a life, of a land, of a family. That, when I think of colonialism, that's what I think about. Yeah. So can we be honest oh. about... Well, I'm glad she's brought this up because all, all four of the books deals with the issue of uh, uh, damage, and oh. violence, or different in different ways, be it prop, uh, organized warfare, or interpersonal violence, or also societies torn apart. Family. In, yeah, family, in, almost intergenerational with yours as well. So I, I was very happy that she brought up this issue of violence, and when she said it's the ugliness of the past that also needs to be confronted, I think in a way, these authors get there better than the historians. You get to the ugliness. Uh, thanks. But I'll, I'll come to you now. But um, the violence, the damage, the scarring, that's what I want you to talk about now quickly with your... With, I think you started it, Rihanna. But we'll now go to Alexander. And there was a hand here? With the hand? Yes, go for it. But follow up hot pursuit on violence, damage and scarring. What interests me yeah. today, listening to journalists writing, 
and particularly now we have the big bogeyman, Jacob Zuma. Yeah, everything was wonderful before and afterwards. Jacob Zuma. <laughs> Can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what interests me, I don't know if you, if any of you have read um, Terry Crawford Brown's book on the, the on the yes. skill, and very early on in the book, he tells something that nobody seems to know about that Desmond Tutu and a group of clerics wrote to Nelson Mandela, um, I think it was pre-1994, when he was obviously going to be the next president, and the letter pleaded with him to demilitarize South Africa. Their view was that um, we, what we did, we were, there were no external threats to South Africa, so we didn't need an army. What we needed was a completely reinvented police service because they foresaw a vast increase in violence as people <coughs> now moved, as people, you know, as, well, as our history shows us in the last 25 years. And um, the, the point that Terry Crawford Brown made is that Nelson Mandela was sucked in by the, the attraction of because if South Africa demilitarized, we could no longer produce arms. Danelle would have to shut down. And, um, Which it virtually has. Well, no, well yes. Yes. actually, it's mm -hmm. only shut down because it's been subject to corruption. Yes, yes. It, wasn't, Supply. it wasn't shut down. Yeah. But let's get there. So it's about a militarized state, or what? Yes, but the point is that, that everybody now seems so frantic to separate Nelson Mandela from the arms deal. Because oh, that okay. is yes. okay. as the okay. basis okay. of the current corruption. Yeah. That yeah. was the, that's yeah. the okay. foundation stone. Okay. Now we have to continuously rewrite. Yes. As somebody is talking about the arms deal only being, just, just yesterday, a, a well-known woman journalist was talking about the arms deal from 1999. Well, no. No, it goes back further than that. So we're yeah. seeing okay. The ramifications. But I think that Rihanna's book, you have to buy a copy. No, no, you have to, because she is she's one of the, and I think she picked up on the fallists, you know, yeah. um, the fees must fall movement. You guys all know about that. And I think a lot of impetus came from there. But And I take your point, because I think it's valuable there. But now I want to go back to that idea of scarring. And history, can it heal you? If you write these memoirs, come on, does it heal you? No. Or is it an exercise actually no, in pain no, no, no. and flagellation? No. Fred, I want you to come in on this. The, uh, the and only, Alexander. The only book that healed me was the one that can't be published. But I, <laughs> I do the want cat. to speak to the <laughs> real echo of yeah. this trauma that you experienced in South Africa mm. and the US. That as such a big fat, weighted, bullying nation with the same trauma, the mm -hmm. same, mm. and the, I keep saying the same thing you do, I'm white settler, and oh, they get uncomfortable when you call, and you're like, what else are you people? You're white settler. Oh, in Boston, they did not like that. <laughs> um, people walk out, but you know, we have this opioid epidemic, which is an yep. ill, now it's a medical emergency because white kids have it, crack cocaine, it's a crime. The thing that feels to me so incidental, it was so completely essential is this. If you are taking elephant tranquilizers because your pain is so enormous, what the hell happened to you? Mm. And I do think in the age of Trump, it's essential we look at the white community and the scarring 
the uh, intellectual dishonesty that's gone on, the lying, the collusion. And I think it is no accident that it is a white woman, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who stands in front of Donald Trump mm. and is the spokesperson for him because I think traditionally that is the role white women have had. And we can't forget that 53% of white women voted Trump into power. And so white women are often standing at the kitchen door saying nothing to see here when there is plenty going on in the corridors to the little girls, to everybody else. And I think we're in that incredibly deboning moment in the States. To me, being in, the U in South Africa in this moment, can I say how robust these conversations are? You would not, this would be intolerable in the States. Everyone would have left after two and a half it's minutes of this conversation. So, I mean, You've got that going for you. <laughs> okay. A robust approach to arguments. Oh, you know, well, I'll no, take but, it. You know, freedom of oh. speech here is very, very fresh. And I think you notice that people are not taking it for... Uh, Don't take it for granted, uh, granted here. And there is an awful lot of respect. In the States, it's just yelling. There is no yeah. respect for okay. this thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Fred, can you come in on this idea of violence? Your book is about violence, but it's also got moments of beautiful peacefulness. Can I ask you to talk about violence and machismo in your book? And militancy. Okay, I think I'll go to my very first book, um, mm. um, Touch My Blood, because it was yeah. the most yeah. my most personal book. Mm. Um, Rihanna has just said uh, it will be difficult to heal, maybe impossible to heal. Mm -hmm. But I, writing a memoir of, of that uh, class, I found it a, a, cathartic, uh, a, a cathartic exercise for me. Uh, and I even called it my own uh, TRC. Because <laughs> I, uh, I come from uh, Guazum Natal of, of the 1980s, mm -hmm. where the lines were drawn between Ingata and the ANC. Uh, even if you didn't belong to, to, to either of the two, by virtue of living in a neighborhood mm -hmm. that was perceived to be in Qatar controlled, mm -hmm. you could be killed mm -hmm. uh, or attacked for that. So I came from a, an, a UDF controlled neighborhood and I got attacked for that, almost killed, uh, because they thought I was one of the other. It didn't help that I was also a journalist and journalists were generally considered to be uh, on the other side. So. In writing this book, I was looking at, at all those dynamics and what actually happened and uh, what my role was as an individual and as a person from a particular neighborhood mm -hmm. and a particular political mindset. Uh, I didn't belong either to Inkata mm -hmm. or the UDF. Mm -hmm. I was black consciousness, mm -hmm. another uh, uh, ill-defined entity at the time. They didn't understand what was happening. Oh, you, you are not with us, so you must be on the other side. Mm -hmm. So in writing this book, I was trying to set the record straight, which healed me uh, uh, um, emotionally, uh, but also taking into cognizance, well, uh, taking account of the things that were done to, to me as an individual. So I did achieve a session of uh, catharsis. Catharsis. Yeah, uh, yeah. But with the Mendy, with the new book, can you heal the nation the mm. way you healed yourself? Can there be catharsis for the nation through things like telling the secret hidden history of the Mendy? Yeah, some people who are old enough to, 
to have known uh, some of the men who went over there, mm-hmm. have attended uh, the launches, because I've had many launches of, of this thing, and they have said, thank you for telling this story. Now we can actually say to our children, look, there is actually a book to prove that it actually happened. So uh, in a way, I hopefully add that kind of, uh, I make a, a contribution, so to speak, to say it actually happened. Whether that heals or not, that's a totally different uh, mm-hmm. uh, question altogether. Mm-hmm. Oh, I found that interesting. All right, would you like to come in on this point, please? Well, the, the question of violence, I think, yes, it has a lot of roots in history, you know, and if you think about what the colonial system did in a way, uh, I don't know if any of you have read Saul Plykis' book, Moody. Yeah, which inspired me. It is how the British used Ngunis to go and fight against the Tswanas, which were um, affiliated to the Dutch, and how the war that the colonialists set up for these people almost destroyed both of them. And people should read that book. But that also goes on into history, you know, that oh, we must be very careful about. And um, the violence in this country. Yes, it has historical roots. And I remember many years ago being taken to 10th floor in John Foster Square after I was beaten up by the security police. This was a few days after Ahmed Timor was thrown out of the window. And this policeman called Roy Hafenha came up to me and he said, I don't know if all of you understand Afrikaans, and he said to me, here is where half coolies flieg. Open the window, he said, they flieg. Do you want to fly out the window? You are half coolie. This is how you fly from here. Are you going to tell me the truth or are you going to fly? And I refused to tell him the truth. And he consulted those people. And all he turned around was smack me and kick me. And they took me back to the cell. And it turns that he didn't want to kill me, didn't want to jump. But none of those things are in memory. I do think, yes, history is important. But for me, what's far more important is the reality of what exists today. What is driving the violence in our country is not the young people's knowledge of the past. It is poverty and inequality. If I go to the township where I grew up in nuclear, and I look where my brother still lives, and I look at what's happening there, drugs, flats where the homes were destroyed, and the crime rate is unbelievable. If we don't focus on overcoming poverty and inequality, we are never going to overcome the violence in here, no matter how much historical effort we make, no matter how many TRCs we have. And perhaps that's why my books focus Mm. on uh, the violence today as well as in the past. Mm. Because I really think if we keep being bogged down on who was guilty in the past, we're never going to deal with corruption in the police system here, poverty, inequality, and invest in young people the way we should. You know, if, mm. one last word. That's if fine. I had a dictatorship... <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's what she says with real love. Yes, yeah. okay. <laughs> and in all the provinces, take away the big cars. No government minister would drive an Audi uh, or a Mercedes-Benz or anything like that. They would get little, well, Volkswagens or Fords, you know, small little cars. Uh, Whatever is cheap, 
and that's why they would drive. The money that's saved from there would be invested in basic education, so We're we can begin this money. to change don't get outcomes. the mind system. In this all right, well, I think we need to bring it back to history, even though I do take your point. Um, I want to ask a slightly different question now, but it, it does play on what you just said about Sol Plyke, the first, if you can say, professional black historian in the country, actually, who also wrote the first um, novel in an African language. Um, who gets to tell the story? So I'm, I'm interested in that question. Who, do you know the young people, the young people I see you here among us, they always like to talk about cultural appropriation. And mm. I find that quite interesting. Who, are you guys stealing stories? Have you got the right to tell the story? And if so, who has the right to tell the story? Whose history is it anyway, really? Who owns it and who gets to tell it? So could you, could you guys come in on that, Rihanna? I know you've got views on that camp. Well, I'm lucky because I'm one of Desmond Tutu's original rainbow children mm -hmm. of God. <laughs> what a relief. How lucky am I? <laughs> I, got, I got a slave brought here. I got an indentured worker come here. I've got a Rousseau who owned a vineyard in me. I've got some Indian in me. I'm a proper rainbow child of God. You write what so you like. I can write what I like. I can write about male Afrikaners as well. Nice. Which I did. Um, but it's very strange how people pigeonhole you. So yeah. my, my first novel was about Hanover Park, which is a township in Cape Town where, okay. I mean, people are dying on yeah. the Cape Flats at the level that people are dying in Syria, and we don't call it a war. So everybody came to me and said, oh, you know, it must have been so tough growing up in the township. And I was like, no, I'm not from the township. Yeah, but you wrote about it. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not from there. And in the end, it was, I felt almost like I'm defending myself because I had a very boring middle-class childhood um, and I went to good schools yeah. and I learned Latin at yeah. school. Yeah. And, you know, it's like... You sell out. I'm sell out. <laughs> but there was, there was, despite two waves of dispossession, the 1912 Land Act, which took all our land, and the Group good. Areas Act, which again took all of our land. So my family has like been on its knees and back up again a lot. Um, but don't worry, we're not taking anybody's land this time. We're going to ask nicely. <laughs> and then you're going to give it to us, and then we're going to say, we're not going to pay you for it, so it's fine, okay? We will ask nicely before we so don't pay you. So, but it is that thing. So my, the second book is my main character lives in Bukup. Yeah. And now all the interviewers are like, oh, you know, it must have been so interesting growing up in Bukup. And I'm like, no. And then they say, oh, but you know Malay people? And I say, no, no, not really. Um, because you, everybody thinks that only Malays can write about Malays and, and, and only people from Manover Park can write. And, and then I also get this thing about, you know, finally you're telling other people's stories. And I'm like, no, we've been telling our stories all along. You just haven't been reading it. <laughs> um, you know, so I'm, it's not my intention to be a picaresque writer. Oh. I just, my characters have to live somewhere. And I mean, everybody can't live in Newlands or Underbush. Um, <laughs> Because then literature in South Africa would be boring. So, but it is a thing the way people deceive it because. That's awkward if the Nandal is appropriate. No, Nandal is ours. But it's ours. Anyway. Like Pinil is ours. You can't touch Pinil. Take the turn. You can't touch Pinil or Nandal. Let's move away from this onto Alexander. Do you want to come in on this? 
Because your recent book is, you're not telling your story, hey? Just tell the people, because not everyone's had a chance to read it yet. Ah, uh, yeah. So I, um, I, I spent some months on assignment on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, which is about nine hours drive from uh, where I live in Wyoming. And um, in the, it, I wasn't done after I'd finished writing the book about the Lakota. I went on there and I felt, God, I've been here before. The template of racism, <laughs> boom. It's a stamp. I mean, suddenly you go from the United States of America onto the res, and the demographic statistics are that of Haiti. I mean, that is an arrangement. That is not an accident. Um, and so life expectancies, you know, 30, uh, around about 38 for men and a little over 50 for women, 8 out of 10 alcoholism. I mean, the, the darkness that was projected on the res, the genocide, and the way I described it last night, it would be like if someone showed up in Stellenbosch and said, you know what? If you guys play rugby, we will rape all the women and take all your land. And also, if you speak Afrikaans, we'll kill you. You have to learn Greek. And we're going to shave your heads and take away your land. And also, you, can't, you have to um, worship frogs. And, <clears throat> and then when you come back, we're not going to let you for 100 years speak your own language. And we wonder why you're a little screwed up. And what has happened on the Lakota is this incredible resilience. How? It's been done, I don't know, but the handing down even the, the spirituality was illegal, the language was illegal, and to, so to find these kernels of wisdom that go back into that earth where I am now settler changed everything. It kind of terrified everyone around me because I began to really listen to what was being told to me on the res. Whose land are you on, really? Who are you, really? And I thought, my God, I'm repeating my history without meaning to. I mean, this is just a longer version of the Rhodesian War. It's a lot more subtle the way the US wages war. But if you look at what they took at Standing Rock, that is military. Those guys were out of Iraq. That is war, domestic war, that's civil war on North Dakota territory. And the governor of Wyoming sending troops in. Me, I'm saying, this now looks like war. Oh, no, you don't. That's not war. I said, well, I've seen one before, so this is definitely war. And so for me to write that and to come back into the white community who are so oblivious, mm -hmm. as if you know, native indigenous people didn't exist, uh, it, it uh, dismantled me um, completely. Um, what do you mean? In every way. I mean, I moved from living in a house and having stuff to living in a yurt on rented land. I gave sort of up the idea of this American dream as being an incredibly violent um, enterprise that uh, is absolutely the... You know, you say maybe we should forget history, urgent now, poverty, etc. I understand that, but the structure that makes sure that racism stays in place in the states, that incarceration of black and indigenous people is insanely high. That is from our fathers and grandfathers and all the rest of it. That was, I mean, the same thing that happened in Rhodesia happened in the states, which is that because white people made the laws, they make what they do look legal. Because they control the votes, they make look what they do democratic. And because they control the media, they make look what they do... Normal. You know, normal. Normalize it completely. And for me, I think I'm that... 
horrible thing no one wants, which is a loud immigrant pointing out the similarities between the oppression you came from and the oppression you landed at. And what they really don't want is a white settler saying, this is wrong, you guys. I've been here before. The Americans, though, they go, ah, no, it's nothing like Rhodesia. And I go, but I was in both places. Yeah, well, you just don't understand geopolitics. So that's kind of where. So in a way, what you're saying is because you're, in a way, a radical outsider, it can make you an insider. Right. And okay. it, although I absolutely accept and will take on the challenge of appropriation, I think it's a very, very important question to ask a white writer. Definitely. Mm. And I think your feet need to be held to the fire. And I think there is so much intellectual dishonesty on, on the side of white writers and historians that, that it's very important that this happen. I think that my radical outsider status made it so that I came respectfully to the work. But I, you know, I'm also not mm. the last word on that, honestly. Of course, but yeah, it's a, yeah. Good, it's a good answer, yeah. yeah. Fred? What do you think? In broader terms, uh, I find this whole concept of uh, cultural um, appropriation problematic. Mm. Uh, who owns culture? Uh, whose culture? And how do, where does culture begin and where does it end? Growing up in this country, we, we were taught that the white men came up with the will, came up with the money. But history shows us that the white men learned some of these tricks from the Chinese. Yeah. So who owns the and culture? And other groups. Yeah. Definitely didn't um, come up with white yeah. water. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, and that we, there was some controversy last year when one of the fashion houses used uh, the Basutu, Basutu blanket mm. in one of their adverts. And the Basutu people said, this is our culture. And they said, wait a minute, blanket? Yeah. And this is our culture, the Sheshwe cloth, fabric. I mean, really, this thing was introduced to Lesotho by the Germans. Yeah. This is this your culture now? So where does it begin, where does it end? So um, I do have a problem with that. Thankfully, I'm a writer, I can just write yeah, yeah, about anything I choose to write about. Yeah. Yeah. In my latest book, for example, um, the main character uh, is... Uh, uh, is Pizzo, who happens to be a so-called so uh, colored person. Mm. Uh, I've never had a character like that because I, I've always been conscious of, of um, am I going to get this character correct? Mm. Have I lived mm. long enough with white people to really understand the nuances and so forth? Mm. Um, once I got comfortable with, with that, I thought I could, ta I could uh, take that risk. So as an artist, it's a challenge that you set uh, for yourself to say, you know, I think I've done my research well enough to take that leap. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I do not think we should uh, uh, impose this thing, uh, these preclusions that you can't write about that because you don't belong there. That is absolutely nonsense in my book. Uh, once I understand uh, the vendor culture, because we've got a a vendor president now. I'll write about vendors. <laughs> Fred, that's a perfect answer. I just wish you could tell my students that. <laughs> all cultures appropriate other cultures all the time, yeah. and they always have. That's what cul cultures cul do. They're cul like Pac-Man. Culture is yeah. dynamic. Yes, it exactly. It's not static. It's yeah. not. It's not. Um, 
It doesn't belong in a, yeah. in a small kind of... And people uh, who set themselves up as the patrollers yeah. or watchers of the culture, you must watch out for them, yeah. the culture brokers. But I do have to say that when it is being so aggressively attacked as it is, the indigenous population of the US, this is when I panic. Oh, okay. When the culture is under assault to the point oh, yeah. of cultural genocide. genocide. For yeah. me, sure, sure, this sure. is... And I, I would worry in the States someone saying something like that because all the white people would be like, you know what, a black man said it. Oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> we'll take that to the bank. Yeah. And uh, that yeah, really yeah. concerns me because yeah. I do think we have a terrible... Uh, our track record's not squeaky. So do you think yeah. they would do violence to the history God, of yes. telling a Native American? Of course. Do you think you did? Your good bloody question. I hope not. <laughs> I, re- I hope not. Okay. This, yeah. I mean, I, well, it's an question. question. I yeah. feel like I did my work before okay. I got yeah. to the page, yeah. but yeah. 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 No, I take your point. And would you like to come in on this? Well, um, Mr. Kumalo, I think you stole character from my book, Pizzo Peter Tau. He's <laughs> the father of the narrative. My book came out first. Oh. <laughs> All right, this you want to argue. Whose culture, who's culture? Who's culture? <laughs> whose history, whose culture is this? I think we need to go beyond that. And as a writer, I have made many, many mistakes. Uh, I, I agree in mixing up culture. I thought it was wonderful. My publisher used to think, and uh, well, the critics. When I published Kafra's Curse, which is a story of a young Muslim guy whose name is Ibrahim Khan, who meets a young Jewish woman and he changes his name to Adam Khan and he changes the spelling from K-H-A-N to K-A-H-N so that the two of them could get together. What happens to him is he ends up turning into a tree. It metamorphosizes, it's called Kafka's curse. We, Kafka's curse is we human beings are you can either look at it pessimistically, we are doomed to metamorphosize, or we are destined to metamorphosize. We are due to change. And I really think the cultural change that needs to take place here in our country and across Africa is respect for difference. Mm-hmm. And respect even for different languages and different traditions without um, you know, elevating one or the other. And I'm not saying you sacrifice the things mm-hmm. that would help young people compete in this world. So don't make an indigenous language compulsory education at the expense of English. That must be the choice that those young people make. Because if they didn't have English, they wouldn't be able to compete in this modern world. And I know it sounds terrible, but that has affected so much of Africa. In India today, 70% or 80% of people are English-speaking because otherwise they wouldn't compete. And apparently that is beginning to happen in China as well because the Chinese are competing with the whole world. But yeah, in South Africa, of course, we have a problem about cultural heritage, who has imposed uh, whose language on what, whose culture on what. And I'm grateful, perhaps, that I grew up in that very, very mixed society, spoke languages that are so confused. Mother tongue Afrikaans, which is now, this I mean, you know, arsel and twaifel, full of doubt. English is the main language, but I also spoke Tswana and Tsotsita, and I can sing you Tsotsital 
uh, <laughs> songs about the, how we sang to oppose uh, the apartheid regime. But we must, I believe that even as writers, we must communicate with each other that culture is not something that you impose on each other like the Nazis did. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, I think on that stirring note, there's time for literally one question. I do see a hand there, so you could just ask it to the panel. Nice. <laughs> in this country of no readers, um, you're, not, you're definitely not writing for the money. Um, nobody, uh, there are very few writers in South Africa who earn enough from the sale of their books to write full time. Yeah. So there is no boss, you write for the love of it because mm -hmm. there is no financial reward. Um, there is the reward of sitting in front of a nice crowd and getting mm -hmm. to meet people mm -hmm. and talking to them, but there's no, fun. no, there's no boss. Anyone else want to come in on that? You know, who's your boss? I, I, the editor ultimately says whether I get published or not. But, and this is going to sound crazy, I have to write for God. Yes, whatever. The uh, bigger thing than me was if I thought I was writing for a specific person, I would never have the guts or the courage to sit there in front of the blank page. And I've written so many memoirs, exposed so much. My mother's mentally ill alcoholic with an Uzi submachine gun. You just need to blank that out, you know, higher power, write what's in front of you, because I think imagining who's going to read it is, to me, terrifying. Terrifying. Sure. Gosh. Fred? Yeah. When I write for the Sunday Times, I know there's a market there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when I write my books, yeah. uh, I'm writing to please myself, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know, as, as Rihanna correctly observed, in this country, people do not really buy books. Mm -hmm. So it's more expensive to write a book as a writer because yeah. the energy, the time you spend on, on, on writing, is just, it doesn't make sense yeah. uh, if you think in terms of rents and cents. Mm -hmm. So it's basically something that you do for the love of it. <clears throat> I have no boss. I had many powerful bosses in the years. And I always used to find time to write, even when I worked for some of the most difficult people. <laughs> I write because I feel it is inside of me. There's things that I have seen, that I've heard, that I've believed, that I've read, that I think needs to get out. And um, I remember it's not about money either, because when my novel, Bitter Fruit, mm. was shortlisted for the 2004 Booker mm. Award, mm. it was then translated into 11 languages. And one of them was um, Hebrew. And guess who objected? Was people from Pakistan who then refused, said, no, we don't want that book here. You know, it is too. And so I think we write, I write certainly, because there's things in my soul that I need to get out. I try to be objective and fair, but I don't think I always succeed. Sometimes I do offend people by, um, revealing things that they didn't want me to reveal. Yeah, and now you sound like a historian. We offend the dead all the time. But on that rousing note, thank you for this amazing, amazing panel. Thank you, audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.